Now on Documentary on News Talk, presenter Sean Moncrief catalogues his recent trip to Somalia. In Somalia, the complicated business of helping people. Think of the map of Africa. Just below the bulge on the right-hand side, there's a triangular piece of land that juts out, the Horn of Africa. It's an ancient place. There are cave paintings here at least 6,000 years old, along with a script that's yet to be deciphered. There are pyramids older than those in Egypt, and many think that here is where Homo sapiens first appeared. In a sense, we're all from this place. Modern-day Somalia. And it's a mess. Somalia, the complicated business of helping people. November 2023, Mogadishu Airport. Already there's a complication. After years of drought, rain has returned to the country, but it's torrential. The road outside the airport is flooded, effectively trapping everyone inside. Workers scrabble about, looking for a solution. Somalia is a place of problems, and problem-solving. So before we even leave this place, a quick history lesson. New African nation, the Republic of Somalia, declared its independence. Somalia gained independence in 1960, having been a colonial possession of Britain in the north and Italy in the south. For the next nine years, it remained a democratic country, yet there were considerable tensions, both nationally and between different regions. There was incompetence and allegations of corruption. Intellectuals weren't happy. The army wasn't happy. In 1969, there was a bloodless coup. That's Major General Mohammed Syed Barre, who went on to rule the country for the next 20 years. Barre suspended the constitution and banned all political activity. But for the first decade, the relative stability did produce some benefits. He managed to increase the literacy rate from 5% to 50%, which in turn prompted a flourishing in the arts, in theatre and music. Then, in 1978, there was a coup attempt against him. The main reason why we came here is to tell the whole world the agony Somalia is passing through. Barre brutally suppressed the coup, but this only led to the establishment of various armed opposition groups around the country, mainly based on clan lines. Ah, the clans. For a moment, let's pause the history. Clans are where Somalia gets really complicated. Geographically, when you talk about Somalia, if you talk about a particular area, region, district, whatever, indirectly you're talking about a clan. When you said region X, you're talking about clan X. Either one clan is in that region, or there are a couple of clans, but there's always one major clan who dominates the others. That's the current president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, giving an address at Oxford. Somalis speak the same language. They are ethnically homogenous. They are overwhelmingly Muslim. Yet it's arguable that Somalia isn't a country at all. The clan system has existed in the Horn of Africa for centuries. Somalis are born into a clan and tend to marry within it too. 
There are four major clans and hundreds of subclans, and for most Somalis, the clan is family. It gets their highest allegiance. There's an old Somali proverb, either be a mountain or attach yourself to one. It's a system that complicates every aspect of political and social life in the country. But back to the history. Armed opposition to the Barre regime grew during the 1980s. His forces were driven back to Mogadishu until, in 1991, Barre fled the country. And then there was chaos. Millions who were displaced by the fighting now found themselves caught between various militias battling for control. Aid agencies found it all but impossible to help the people who needed it. Imagine 7,000 tons of food aid literally bursting out of a warehouse on a dock in Mogadishu while Somalis starve less than a kilometer away because relief workers cannot run the gauntlet of armed gangs roving the city. Confronted with these conditions, relief groups called for outside troops to provide security so they could feed people. It's now clear that military support is necessary to ensure the safe delivery of the food Somalis need to survive. President George Bush announcing the launch of Operation Restore Hope. It did anything but that. The US and other UN forces kept getting dragged into battles with local militias, resulting in the infamous Battle of Mogadishu. 18 American soldiers and up to a thousand Somalis died. This past weekend, we all reacted with anger and horror as an armed Somali gang desecrated the bodies of our American soldiers and displayed a captured American pilot. All of them soldiers who were taking part in an international effort to end the starvation of the Somali people themselves. These tragic events raise hard questions about our effort in Somalia. When will our people come home? In 1994, Bill Clinton pulled the US out of Somalia. The following year, the remaining UN forces did the same. Somalis were left on their own for more than a decade. A transitional government was set up in exile, and with the help of Ethiopian and African Union forces, managed to reclaim control of the country in 2007, or most of it. The former British colony in the north, Somalialand, claimed independence, which it maintains to this day. In the south, the one force they were unable to defeat or negotiate with is still active in Somalia, Al-Shabaab. Somalia, 1992. American crusaders joined the coalition of disbelievers in their invasion and occupation of Somalia. Under the false pretext of alleviating famine and providing humanitarian aid, thousands of American soldiers were deployed to the shores of the Indian Ocean making Somalia the fourth Muslim country in 10 years to be invaded by the United States as part of its international crusade against Muslim lands. That's an Al-Shabaab propaganda video, and it brings us up to today. A minibus has been sent to collect us, so we have escaped the airport floods. The group consists of some journalists and officials from UNICEF who have invited us to the country. Because, officially, Al-Shabaab doesn't approve of any Western aid agency, we will be staying in the Green Zone, a series of fortified buildings that straddle the airport, each one with its own armed guards and bomb shelters. And to leave the zone, as we're about to do this morning, requires complicated preparations. 
a security briefing, an armed escort, travel in an armoured jeep, and for us all to wear flak jackets. Given all that, you'd expect Mogadishu to be a fearful, ruined place. But it's quite the opposite. Even through the bulletproof glass we can see the street traders, the swarming tuk-tuks, the beautiful energy of the place. I'd like to get out and have a walk around, except they wouldn't let me. We're headed to Banadir Hospital, once the scene of a vicious battle in the 1990s. Now it coaxes children back to life. The unchanging factor in Somali life is hunger. The threat of famine is never far away. In the stabilization center, Dr. Ibrahim Shilu, who works for Concern, oversees the care of children worn down by malnutrition and attacked with the likes of pneumonia and diarrhea. We've all seen pictures of hungry babies, but the reality of a twig-like infant swathed in tubes, balancing on the precipice of death, is a cold shock. Oh, gosh. Um, and here is a very critical ill unit. Yeah. And, and you see the patient. Oh, okay. And, 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 and Jal has admitted uh, that before three days. And yes, uh, our doctor said, uh, Jal, we are trying to, to, to manage the case. Yeah. But um, maybe uh, Jal still little progress. And there is no fasting progress. Eh? Mm. So, but uh, she said we are trying our, our best, and maybe yeah. they need intubation because of the, the respiratory problem. Yes, yeah. But she said we're trying our, our, our best, and here it's not an, an, an like a surgical unit, yes. but here is <laughs> here is a is a, is a malnutrition unit. So, yeah. that, but she said we're trying our best, but yeah. but just the child is suffering for that complication. She uh, clearly right? has difficulty hmm? uh, breathing because yes, she's breathing, yes, yes, breathing is very difficult. I, I, could, could you, can I ask how old is she? Yes, we can. Yeah. I said, I'm a two years. Two years, okay. Jali has got, she said, two years old. Two years old, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. well, normally, they'd be very, oh God, and she is in pain. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, thank, thank you. you very much. Hey, Best Ali of all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Hope you can see it. Yeah. This guy is suffering for malnutrition, pneumonia, and also sepsis. Skin infection. Yeah? So that's... And also anemia. 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 Yes, absolutely. Developed. Well, so that's why we are admitted here. And yes, and, and, and Jal has two years and three months old. Does it happen that the child is brought in and it's too late and, and the child dies? And, and there is a, the death is, is coming, but we have looked at the, the percentage, how many children admitted and get recovery. So the less than less than five, the less than 10 is acceptable 10 percent i mean is acceptable mostly but we are trying our best dr shilo leads us through a series of wards each one containing children who are gradually improving after the final room they're discharged there are similar stabilization centers dotted around the country 
Yet still it's striking how limited the space is. In here you have eight beds and it's similar sizes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Have you, uh, have, you enough, have you enough beds to deal with all the people who turn up with, with sick children? Yes, thank you so much. That's a good question. And here is a 75 bed in, in, in here. And due to the little capacity bed, UNICEF and Concern have agreed to add another new building that we will see. Okay. That we will see. Hmm? And it will start maybe this month mainly. It, it, it will start. But it has finished newly, uh, 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 newly. Then we have installed the bed or other equipment needed. Then it will, it will start there. So, and 75 plus 40, maybe 100 above bed yeah. will, will, will manage, inshallah, the, 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 the next year, inshallah. Yeah. Yes, by the time of January, we will manage more than 100 beds. Eh? <laughs> but the new hospital wing comes with the inevitable complications. Getting it built and equipped is one thing. It's the day-to-day -day running costs that are much more difficult to raise. The international community still regards Somalia as an emergency, not a place for long-term investment. While the doctors here will run through the medical reasons why children end up in Banadir Hospital, poor care, lack of vaccination, the simple lack of food, the underlying cause is the continuing war in the south of the country with Al-Shabaab, or non-state actors, as Somalis like to call them. But there's another factor at play here too, in Somalia, the climate is attacking the country. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of UNHAS, operated by 748, our captain in command, Samuel Muzinji, assisted by First Officer Nasir. My name is June, and with me in the cabin is our engineer, Teddy. We would like to welcome you on our Dash 8100. Ready for departure to Baidar? International our aid requires infrastructure. Before an agency can start feeding people, they need security and buildings and communications. They also need to be able to get around. UNHAS is the United Nations Humanitarian Air Service, essentially an airline that operates in crisis zones. Today we're being flown to Dullo, a sleepy one-street town on the border with Ethiopia. But Dullo is ringed with camps containing internally displaced people, or IDPs, there are five camps spread over a wide area. Their combined estimated population is half a million. They've gone to the camps to find food and to escape the fighting, but even in the camps, they're not protected from climate change. Somalia is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to the climate crisis, which is why it became the first place to get a UN-appointed climate peace and security advisor. His name is Christoph Hodder. Why is Somalia particularly so vulnerable to climate change? Are there, is there, first off, a physical set of reasons for that? Uh, yeah, so there's a few physical reasons. So as part of the El Nino effect and the, the cycle of weather patterns that go around the east, or the Indian diapole, what it's called, um, there is this uh, weather patterns that are more likely to be impacted. So you're, what we're seeing is actually sort of this balance between uh well around the, the 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 indian continent and then across to australia and then round the north and then coming round so we, we there's a, there's a much more uh impactful physical uh aspect to somalia mm -hmm. uh, and that's what 
because climate change exacerbates some of those climatic patterns, um, what we're seeing is that there's more impact in, in some areas. But if you look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, the latest one, it talks about how climate change is going to exacerbate several things. One, we're going to see an increase in temperatures. So that's what the drought we saw is the worst in like several decades. Um, and then we're seeing then also this, this precipitation increase in rainfall. And so this is what the flood we're seeing now uh, massively. And then on top of that, we're going to see this frequency of happening very much increase all the time. You know, Somalia is very much dependent on um, on livestock on livestock uh, and, and pastoralism. And actually what we're going to see likely is that because there's a there's a, a human part to this, there's desertification. So cutting down the trees for charcoal use that is causing uh, soil erosion. And because there's soil erosion, there's less grass and less availability for uh, cattle, goats, camels to, to graze. And so that is causing a lot of the problems. So when the rain falls, it hits the ground. And because there's less and less nutrients in the ground, um, because of the desertification, that water is running off. So actually, we're seeing gullies of water in rural areas that is meaning that the, the nutrients are not staying. And so there's less and less grass. And that means there's there's more competition, there's more conflict over that. So what we're going to see is that, yes, there'll be different impacts in different areas, but likely uh, there will be areas that are just too hot to live in the rural areas. And uh, there'll be areas that are just going to be underwater because of the river iron floods. And this will be a cycle that will happen every year. And you kind of alluded to it there, that there'll be a social and political effect of this in, in the sense of a battle for resources in some parts of the country. Yeah, exactly. And this is the whole issue around climate peace and security is that this uh, competition over those resources is only going to increase. So we're going to see increases in competition over grazing lands. We're going to see an increase in competition over water. So recently, this flood is probably around 500,000 currently people impacted and having to displace. So they're going to have to move to other other areas. That's going to cause competition over land. That's going to cause competition and conflict over different areas. And that's also going to cause you know ripple effects across regionally and maybe globally so you know people are going to have to move from here they're going to have to move regionally to other areas that's going to cause competition movement and that will cause transboundary tensions as well and then obviously the the other part of this is that militant groups will also gain from this part so al-shabaab other groups are also going to gain from the ability to control over areas uh, and so like they can they are controlling water wells they're controlling different points in this tension. Is it just Al-Shabaab or do the clans to some extent take advantage of this as well? So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, I, I'm not sure we can say take advantage of it. I think that they, there is this interest based and in any uh, country around the world, there is a sort of competition and interest around the different resources. Um, and so the clans are definitely involved in that. Um, and I think that, you know, clan dynamics will definitely change and definitely be impacted by that. And I think that it's a, it's an integral part to think about stabilization programming is about peace building. How do you actually do that with clans to ensure that we try to reduce some of the tensions around it? Dolo Airport is a strip of compacted sand. Beside it, one flat roof building and the burnt guts of an airplane that crashed here a few years ago. The inevitable armoured jeeps and armed guards are waiting for us. We're here to see the IDP camps, but before that, we have to pay a courtesy visit to the Dullo District Commissioner. The terms are inherited from British rule, while the District Commissioner himself would have been appointed due to clan membership. 
takes a while. There's a circle of perhaps 20 of us. Everyone has to introduce themselves. Everyone has to thank the commissioner and his staff. Well, the commissioner and his staff have to tell us how welcome we are. My name is Sean Moncrief. I'm a journalist from Ireland. From Ireland. Afterwards, back in the Jeep, I wonder about this. So I ask Victor Chineyama, an affable Zambian who's worked for the UN all his life and is head of communications for UNICEF Somalia. Victor, can I ask you about... Uh, uh, everybody introduces themselves and there's a certain degree of formality. It was at the dinner last night and we just had it there. Is that a Somali thing or an, an African no, thing? it's a very African thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's... Uh, we are big on protocol, yeah. which is connected to ego. Yeah. You know, if I'm not mentioned, I'm not given a chance to introduce myself. I feel slighted, yeah. and that can be an issue, yeah. right? So always, even handing over, I have to speak and then hand over to, to, to somebody junior, who hands over to somebody middle rank, who hands over to the boss, yeah? So you don't just go to the boss directly and speak, no. <laughs> it can be ridiculous. I think uh, it's worse when you're talking with government people because government uh, are very big on this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, seniority is treasured. Ego is the big deal. Even yeah. if you have achieved zero in your life, but as yes. long as you hold the senior title, uh, you're given all the respect, you know. And, uh, so having paid our respects, and after another brief meeting with doctors when we arrive, we enter a Kabasa IDP camp. It's been here since 2012, and is the oldest camp in the area. It's so vast, it's difficult to get a sense of scale. It has a school, a makeshift main street where people sell and buy whatever they can, and a medical centre for mothers and babies. Although it's funded by UNICEF and other aid agencies, it's run by SIDA, the Community Empowerment Development Association, which is a Somali organisation. For all sorts of reasons, it's important that in these camps, Somalis are seen to be helping themselves. And one of those reasons is security. Dullo is generally regarded as a safe area, but there's a delicate, complicated balance to maintain. It's known that in 2022, when Somalia was close to famine, many Al-Shabaab fighters sent their families to IDP camps to be taken care of. Those families are still there, and, it's generally assumed, occasionally visited by their men. It's also assumed that Al-Shabaab knows what's going on in all the camps, the working assumption was that they would know of our visit, but would tolerate it. They tolerate the Western aid too, just so long as it's not trumpeted too loudly. In the medical centre, the stress is on keeping babies healthy and educating the mothers. They supplement their diets, deliver vaccines, help with breastfeeding, and because the average family size is six children, they teach them about contraception. That's a difficult sell. This is Abdi Sak, the medical director of the centre. Uh, mostly in our main health centre, we do health, we do education for prevention. Then we distribute the mothers, those who are beneficiaries who come there, we distribute condoms, and also we give a health education for birth control. Is there any cultural resistance to that? Mostly they are not using the culture, it's not allowed. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 
So is that difficult? We are continuing for giving education on using those uh, condoms and also family planning. Because yeah, I'm wondering that you, you give that edu education to women, but when they go home to their husbands, is, is that a challenge to educate the husbands as well? Uh, sometimes it would be challenge. They said our husbands are not allowed because of the context. Sometimes uh, maybe they come with their, with their husband and then they said we need to do this. Then we give them both at the same time for those mobilization. All those children need an education. And in the Kabasa school, the positive effect of the aid they receive is at its most obvious. The kids are happy, they are well fed, meals come with the teaching, and most importantly, they think they have a future. And has she thought about when she finishes secondary school, what kind of work she would like to do? I want to be a doctor. What would you like to do when he's finished secondary school? Uh, I want to when I finish high school, I would like to be uh, to join university. Then I would like to be a doctor as well. Another doctor. Yeah. Okay. There'll be lots of doctors in. Yeah. Uh, uh, can, I, can I ask? Is he the first in his family to to go to secondary school? And I don't know if your family can have got the doctor also good with me. So let's get a job. No, I don't have one. No, I don't have one. Yeah. No, I don't have one. I'm the second. It's the second. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Where did you go for the job? Foreman. My other colleague, yeah. or my the other brother, he's he's in foreman right now. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And is he going to be a doctor as well? I said, "Sir, can you read me a question?" Sir, can you read me a question? Yeah. Brasilia. And my brother also like to be a, a president. A president, <laughs> good man. <laughs> like the president as well. And I would like to be a, a teacher. An art teacher. Yeah, okay. he, he would like to be a teacher. Nothing in the region is in the Yeah. I would also like to be a doctor and as well. Doctor. Okay. Yeah. Well done. We have got uh, one, do uh, two doctors and one teacher. And one teacher and one president in his family. As well. <laughs> It's greatly heartening to see, but in the context of the wider problem, barely a scratch. The school caters for a thousand kids and it struggles for resources. It also faces a constant battle for pupils. There's still resistance to education among rural Somalis, particularly what might be suspicious Western-style education. And that goes double when it comes to educating girls. Teachers have to go door-to-door -door canvassing, trying to win hearts and minds. In the school and the medical centre, it's dry and clean and rather pleasant. But it's in the camp proper, where people live, that you get a vivid sense of their daily struggle. A large part of it was flooded in the recent rains, washing through the makeshift huts that people have built for themselves. Many of the huts are still uninhabitable, forcing people to squash in with relatives, to sleep on the ground in furnace-like temperatures. Yet they have to continue on. The aid agencies can't feed everyone. People have to do what they can to make money for food. A man sits outside his home, 
carving an axe handle. Four years he's living here. Four years. Yeah. Yeah, okay. He buys, that's why he means of getting his food. He crafts these things and then takes to the market. That's the way he lives. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this, you know, where they keep the axe. How long does it take him to make it? Yesterday he cut it and today he's making. So I'm going to Tomorrow is ready. Tomorrow it's ready. And how, how much does he hope to get? How much does he One is for one dollar. One dollar. Yeah. One dollar. Across the way, a woman sits outside her hut because of the flood. It's still too muddy to enter. By hand, she's delicately weaving a basket. This is a basket, traditional basket. Now she makes it and then she sells. So that's the way means of making uh, an income or livelihood. Okay, yeah. how long will it take her to make a basket? Yeah, I'm very high today. 15 days, you have to take to make 15 days, yeah. Yeah. And how much would she sell the basket? I get to do. Fifteen days work for five dollars. That was just two of the many people we spoke to, all of whom had similar stories. That it took them days or weeks walking in the blinding heat to get here. Not one person felt they could ever return to where they came from. The best they could hope for was to remain in this camp for the rest of their lives. And as depressing as that is, it raises yet another complication. I ask Victor, who owns this land? Oh, yes, that's... That's the issue. Right. So, sometimes... Maybe let's ask, who are we going to ask? Who owns this land? But you don't know who owns it? No, there's people who own land. Okay. And one of the issues is we can't put up permanent infrastructure on this land when it's owned by an individual. Yes. Because they're going to wake up tomorrow and say, get out. Yeah. It's happened before. Mm. You build a boho, he comes and says, get out. So we have built him a boho or we have built him a school, Yeah, you know. So generally, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. That's why, you know, talking to the government to take the lead on this because there's lots of complications around land ownership, yeah. clan and all of that, power dynamics, to try and see if they can negotiate with the landowners at least for the IDP, places where IDP are staying, to give up that land, yeah? Yeah. So it becomes common land on for the common good. Yeah, yeah. But it's an issue. Yeah, because I was reading now, I think this is more an issue in Mogadishu, about what they call gatekeepers, where people yeah. kind of rent out land. Everywhere, even here. Are you recording me? Yes, I am, yeah. That's why I was pointing a microphone Sneaky, <laughs> sneaky. <laughs> it is an issue, I think. I uh, think gatekeepers are people with responsibility mm. over, over an IDP. They could become camp um, commanders or whoever is in charge of the particular land. Yeah. And they have, they have uh, some authority to decide the allocation of resources, right? In that place, you know. Mm. And... Um, it becomes then a question of how can we work with uh, all parties concerned to ensure that support is reaching those who need it the most. Yeah. Now, yeah, but I've, I've read 
different opinions on this. Some people think it's terrible because they're essentially charging rent to these people, but at the same time, they're providing a service, they're providing... I, I, and I imagine it depends on who the gatekeeper is, but they're providing some degree of safety and security and, well, and, and facilities of various sorts. It has to be agreed, you know. It has to be agreed, right, <laughs> that uh, for what you're providing, this is what you will get in return, yeah. concession. Yeah. You know, so that at the end of the day, it's not uh, yeah. at the expense of the IDPs. Yeah. This is a complicated cr- uh, country. It is complicated. <laughs> at many levels. Yeah. Um, and I think there are beliefs and practices that are rooted in centuries of practice. Yeah. That you cannot change overnight. Some of the changes will be evolutionary. Uh, some of the changes have to be revolutionary. And some of it is about working with communities, working with the duty bearers, you know, people have a duty and responsibility over the weak in mm. and vulnerable in society to understand that their primary duty and obligation is to the weak in society and not to themselves. But say some, uh, uh, some of those practices, I assume you're uh, referring to at least one of them would be FGM. Um, yeah. FGM yeah. Is, is one of the biggest challenges yeah. in uh, in Somalia. Uh, 99.9% yeah. of girls have undergone FGM. And to change a practice like that is going to take time. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes it's going to be a generational change you know as you more and more uh, young people are beginning to realize that this is not in their best interest and you build a critical mass of these young people to begin to have a voice you Mm. know to speak out on some of these uh, practices that up to this point is a taboo to speak against there needs to be many many other uh, voices particularly the uh, the gatekeepers of tradition and custom and and religious belief, you know, that's probably where the most change needs to happen. Yeah, and that's where the most difficult change uh, will be. Yeah, mm. you know. To our left, we watch some people collecting flood water to drink. The water is filthy, and they are issued chlorine tablets to help clean it, but that's no guarantee. It's a reality for all aid agencies, no matter where they are, that they have to deal with how the country is, not how they'd like it to be. But look at how Somalia is. War, climate change, gatekeepers profiting from aid, the clan system, female genital mutilation. The issues seem to pile up one on top of the other. It's all too easy to view it as hopeless. But suddenly, there's music. It's a group of young people gathered in a circle. They thump out the beats and take turns to dance. During the chaos of the 1990s, one group called the Islamic Courts Union banned music altogether. No doubt, there are groups in Somalia who would like to do the same. But that's like trying to sweep water. It always gets through. It bubbles up. The unstoppable human need for joy. And looking at that, 
you have to think, maybe, just maybe. Back in Mogadishu, and there's one last person to talk to, because we haven't run out of complications yet. There's the problem of introducing democracy. Somalia has a parliament and a president, but the government is essentially run by the clans. For democracy to work, they'll have to give up that power. One of the people who's trying to convince them to do that is Katrina Lang the UN's special representative in Somalia. At the moment, the government, how do people get to be MPs? So at the moment, the system is an indirect system, basically. Um, and the, the politics in Somalia is quite complicated. So it isn't really based around political parties. It's based around clans. And of course, clans divide into subclans and subclans and subclans and subclans. So after quite a lot of negotiation of many years, they came to a formula which allocates a proportion of the parliamentary seats um, according to a 4.5 formula. So the four big clan groups get um, a certain proportion of seats and then the 0.5 are all the other smaller clans get get the rest so that's the way it's done so it's an indirect model um, the president is then voted in based on that group of parliamentarians there has been some progress though at in one of the federal member states called Puntland they have now done district level one person one vote elections that was done this year mm. and successfully so the ambition now is to jump from this old style system to do one person one vote at district level and at the federal member state level for the parliamentarians and for the president and and uh, the to be also elected through one person one vote but there's only two and a half more years of this electoral term for president Hashem Sheikh Mahmood and that that is pretty ambitious. So it's good to have that vision, but whether the practicalities will allow that is a little bit questionable, I would say. The old system, essentially, obviously, there's a lot of vested interest in that. So if you're a clan leader, you're pretty happy with that system mm. because it suits you, suits you well. If you're a young person or you're a woman, you're not necessarily very happy with it. But there is some resistance still from the old guard who uh, may be feeling that they want to cling on to the old system. So as prepare for district level elections across the whole country, I think quite a lot of work has to go into advocacy to persuade people, explain to people the benefits of having that accountability at local level, even for those clan leaders, because often they will be the ones who will stand for election, and now as formal district uh, commissioners and so on. And what they, the change will be that you'll have to be much clearer about what you're delivering mm. for the people to get the vote the next time. So it doesn't mean you're necessarily excluded from standing, but you're going to have to work a little bit harder. Mm. So practicality and politics both need some work. Yeah. Now, as you said, you, you did say roll it out across all the country. I imagine there's a rub in that, in the sense that there are at least parts of the country still under the control of Al-Shabaab. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So I think realistically, district-level elections will only be able to take place when, in areas that are secure. And the government, as you'll have heard, is, is, is in an active campaign against Al-Shabaab. And they will hope by this time next year they will have made more progress. But in areas which are still under direct control of Al-Shabaab, it will be difficult to run yeah. elections. Yeah. Now, to get to that point where there, uh, there are uh, democratic elections across the country, 
Is, is the solution to that, in, in, in terms of al-Shabaab, is the solution to that purely military or is there a hearts and minds aspect, a making argument aspect to this too? No, you're absolutely right because um, at the moment, you know, what does al-Shabaab offer the people? Um, it, nothing. It's a, it's a negative um, offer, if anything. It's a predatory organisation that extracts money through people, through extortion, checkpoints, illegal checkpoints, um, prevents children going to school. So there isn't anything positive. The only thing you might say is in that particular area, if al-Shabaab is in control, there may be some very localised security. Um, but people are very constrained in the way they can live their lives. Because, you know, if this group is not contained, it has ramifications for the whole region. Al-Shabaab is not just president in Somalia. Some people may remember the horrible incident Westgate Mall in Kenya, which was al-Shabaab, mm. um, that siege that took place for five days. So al-Shabaab has, has regional and global ambitions. So we, you know, Somalia is at the forefront of this fight, and we need to help them to, to win this fight because they're fighting for all of us. The, our advice to them is to, to not attempt to reclaim territory unless you're sure the police can go in and there is all the support for the local populations. Because in a way you could call it a sort of challenge between depth and breadth. And my, my feeling is it's better to do less and do it better and showcase the results of an area being under government control mm. rather than al-Shabaab control. But Somalia has enormous potential. It has the longest coastline in yeah, Africa. Yeah. And you know there is actually a lot of entrepreneurs, Somali entrepreneurs all over East Africa. Somalis are the classic entrepreneurs. They're very good business people, including in the diaspora. There's, um, there's a lot of investment coming into Mogadishu despite the security challenges. If you look at the skyline, there's buildings going up everywhere. So the, there are opportunities, the coastline, there are minerals. So you know, this is why security is so important, because if we can secure the area, I think the economy will, will take off very quickly. You've taken up this position relatively recently, as I, as I understand it, but you were here in the 90s, was it? Yeah, yes. uh, um, I imagine that these two time period, those two time periods are dramatically different from each other. No, very different. So as I took up this role in um, June, early June, so just coming up to over five months. So I was here in 1993, exactly 30 years ago, um, with the original UN mission, mm. the infamous Black Hawk Down days. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, to answer your question, yeah, com to comparing where, where things were then um, to where they are, I mean, it's light and day. And you know, there is now a functioning government in, in, throughout Somalia um, trying to do the best for its people with very limited resources, but with good intent and, and a high level of ambition. And I really want us to help um, to lock in the gains achieved so far. And they've been hard fought with a lot of lives lost. Um, African Union troops have put their lives on the land, Somali lives on the land. On the land. So we need to help them to, to lock that in and to help country get to where it should be, where it's prosperous and secure and this amazing entrepreneurial talent can thrive. We're back in the airport now, which has its own internal economy. UNICEF pays the hotel we stayed in, which in turn pays a guy to shepherd our baggage through the security checks required to leave the country. His job is to ensure that our bags return with our contents intact. Payments may or may not be involved in this process. It's the entrepreneurial spirit Katrina Lang was talking about. As she said, there are signs of economic hope for Somalia, one of which is stingingly ironic. Somalia is being battered by climate change, but Somalia might have oil. 
Even Chris Harder, the climate change advisor, takes a pragmatic view. One of the big things around COP28 is around uh, energy transition. And I think it has to be a just transition. And so countries that, um, you know, I think it's unfair to say, you know, you can't do oil exploration. And I think that, you know, um, supporting the government to also, you know, economic change will lead to the ultimate bigger change. But that's all a long way off. In the meantime, for most Somalis, it's about survival. In the airport, I keep thinking about that woman making the basket. Five dollars for 15 days' work. She told us that her family were farmers, but the drought killed the crops, and then her husband died. Along with her nine children, she walked for two days to get to the camp in Dolo. She built a hut, then the hut was destroyed by flooding, so she started all over again. If she could endure that, this country can endure anything. There is a woman in Somalia Scraping for pearls on the roadside There's a force stronger than nature Keeps her will alive This is how she's dying She's dying to survive to Somalia, the complicated business of helping people on Documentary on News Talk. For more documentaries, visit newstalk.com.